Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you, Michael. As he mentioned, my name is Kendall, and I'm uh, one of the pastoral interns here. And, uh, love teaching at Genesis U. Um, and as I was uh, thinking about today's message, I wanted to say, first off, that it's a rare opportunity in New England that you would get three Southerners back to back to back uh, <laughs> preaching God's word. Uh, and it's also kind of like a little bit of a deja vu because last week you had a guy from about 30 miles from where I'm from, uh, pretty sad that his team lost. And while I was rejoicing over that fact, um, probably too much, the Lord has chosen to humble me this week because now my team has lost. So I'm in the same place and uh, <laughs> I just, I'm so glad to be here. Um, Really seriously, though, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about this idea that I couldn't shake out of my head. I couldn't get past it. And it was this idea of a picture. Now, imagine, if you will, that there's a young man and a young woman who live in this country. And after some time together, they fall head over heels in love. Um, they're so blissfully happy together. They get married. And um, life just seems like it's perfect. And then, all of a sudden, war breaks out. And then that young man, strong and, and young and able, is called into the service of his country. He's given about a week to prepare. And as you can imagine, those days went by way too fast. And then on the last day, when they're right in front of that plane and he's getting ready to board, they're saying, I love you a hundred times. They've said their goodbyes a hundred times. They say one last, or she gives him one last kiss, and as he turns, she pulls him back and she hands him a picture. And she says, Everywhere you go, every single place that you stop, I want you to look at this picture. I want you to hold it with you and take it with you everywhere that you go so that you can remember me. Because even when you're lonely, I still love you, and I want you to come home safe. Then he gets in the plane, and he does exactly what she says. He goes overseas, and the very first thing that he does is he looks at that picture. Every morning when he wakes up, she's the first thing that he sees. She's the beauty that he sees in the world of mess that's surrounding him. In his foxhole, after a heated battle, he pulls that picture out and he looks at it. When he's so exhausted at night and the last thing that he can think about doing is one more thing, and he just wants to fall over exhausted, he pulls out that picture and he looks at it. Sometimes... He's so overwhelmed with missing her that he squeezes that picture into his chest. And, you know, it's not like he really believed that he could make her real, but he'd imagine that he could. He would kiss that picture. And by the time it was done, I'm sure you can imagine it was pretty worn out. Now, that's entirely appropriate for a man who is missing the most important woman in his life to do that to hold that picture and to, to squeeze it like that. But, and, it, and it also it gave him a tremendous amount of strength to continue on in his battle and to make sure that he got home to his love. That's appropriate. But what would be absolutely inappropriate is if that man came home and he said, Honey, I'm just going to let you know that I need you to move out because I'm going to continue my life with this picture. I've moved on from you. I'm going to live with this picture. And maybe if you don't mind, spot me a few dollars so that I can laminate it because it's kind of worn out. <laughs> you see, that would be ridiculous because something greater than the picture was standing right in front of him. Something more real, more tangible. Now, the picture, they would honor that. 
They wouldn't throw it away. He wouldn't get home and wad it up and throw it in the trash and say, I'm glad to be done with that. He'd put it up on the mantle as a token of the celebration of their love, as a, as a memory that pointed forward to her. See, the whole time, that picture was meant to be not a substitute for her, but a picture of her, a picture of the relationship they had pointing forward to the day when they would meet again. And I feel like that God really spoke to me this week and told me that's exactly the point of Hebrews 9. That when sin entered the world and God had to pull himself away from us because that we were so depraved in our thinking and our minds and that when we were at war with God, that he gave us a picture. He gave us this thing called the law that Moses uh, mediated between him and God. He gave us this thing called the tabernacle, which we'll talk about. He gave us this thing called the priesthood, which is what we talked about the last two weeks. He gave us sacrifices. But all of these are not meant to replace God. They're meant to picture the relationship that's coming in Jesus Christ. I think sometimes, and this is my little soapbox, that uh, as Christians we live in the New Testament exclusively, and I, I love that. That's great because that's where Jesus is. But Jesus is also in the Old Testament. And Jesus is also pictured there, and he's the hope of the Old Testament. So instead of tossing that aside, what I want to do today is I want to pull that old picture out of the attic, dust it off a little bit, talk about this tabernacle, talk about these sacrifices, and then when we're done, put it up on the mantle where it goes as a trophy of God's grace. Now turn with me, after that intro, to Hebrews 9, verse 1. And uh, we'll be lucky if we get out of there. <clears throat> this is the old picture. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. That verse is so dense. We could live there for weeks. In that verse is contained all of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all in one fell swoop. You see, the first covenant was given to us by Moses, given to our forefathers by Moses, that told us that despite all of our sin, we could still be with God. We could still live with God. We could still dwell with God. But there are regulations now. It's not an unmitigated relationship anymore that there's boundaries. And that earthly place of worship, just like we meet here in our little earthly place of worship, was called the tabernacle. That's where they gathered. And I want to talk about that for a little bit because I don't think we're always as familiar because it's hard. These are hard chapters, but bear with me and imagine that you were there. Now, the tabernacle, like I said, was their little church. It was a two-room church. You had a first room and you had a deeper room, an inner room. And the tabernacle was a movable temple. It had poles that they could carry it around and they could move it from place to place depending on where God told them to move. But the interesting thing about this tabernacle was that the whole people of Israel were to pitch their tents around it. They weren't be scattered out in different cities, and they weren't to be far away from God. They, no, they were literally to be close to God, dwelling with God, that God was supposed to be the center of this whole nation. I find that interesting because it's the center of our community today, right? That we are centered in Christ. And it's the same story throughout the whole Old Testament that the tree was placed in the middle of the garden, not because God thought that the center of Eden was geographically more significant, but because as they were fruitful and as they multiplied and as they spread out to the ends of the earth, that God would be the very center of humanity. That's the gospel, even from as far and as early as Genesis. 
But then here we see that the tabernacle, Adam and Eve kind of screwed things up. God wasn't done with them. And he made the tabernacle and all the people to be centered around it because God does want to dwell with his people. Israel didn't always get it right either. But I love the fact that God does not abandon his people when we screw up. That he is unrelenting in his pursuit of us. So that now, in Jesus Christ, we are centered with the Holy Spirit. That no matter what geography there is, seven continents and two billion Christians are all centered on the reality of the Holy Spirit that connects you and me and all of us together. We are centered on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of all human history, and that's the point. Now, as I said, this tabernacle moved. Geography wasn't the most important part, but it remained central by the fact that everybody pitched their tents around it. And it's not like us today. We don't start a brand new neighborhood, a suburb of Boston, as if there's any real estate left in Massachusetts. <laughs> and we don't build our targets first and our movie theaters first, and then, oh, yeah, 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 we need a church. See, these people actually put God's tent up first before they put up theirs. They pitched God's tent before they pitched their own. That tells me that they were literally living with God, but even more important than that, God was choosing to live with them. Now, in our day, in our time, we miss how astounding this reality actually is because we know grace. We know the God who pursues us. We know that when we were still sinners, that Christ died for us and God pursued us. God is a pursuing God. He's an all-consuming fire, and we get that. But we miss how dangerous that this was for the Israelites. We miss how astounding this was because in this time and in that place, this was astounding. Here's a little backstory on that. God is so pure, and the Israelites, not covered by Jesus at this point, were stained by sin. But unlike a wedding dress, and, and I'm really clumsy, so I hope uh, this makes sense. Imagine me carrying a big, a big well of ink. And some beautiful bride is coming to get married. And I'm just carrying this little well of ink because, you know, I think it's important. I trip and I fall and it stains her dress. And that dress takes in that stain. That's not God. See, God is so overwhelmingly pure, nothing can stain him. Um, I was corrected in the first service, so I will be speaking accurately today. Um, imagine that your sin is metallic. And as you sin, now this is, a, this is an illusion, so follow me, that as you sin, little deposits of metal would be inside your bloodstream. And as you sin more and more, your heart becomes heavy because metal's heavy and it weighs you down. Your mind becomes heavy. And as you walk around, you're weighed down by all of this metal that's in your body. The last place that you would want to go is an MRI, not a, not a CAT scan. Magnetic resistance. Um, that's the last place you'd want to go. As I'm told, an MRI, an MRI will rip that right out of your body. Because its powerful magnets are so strong that it can't help but pull that metal out. And in the same way, God is so holy and so powerful that his power would overwhelm us. That we would be ripped to shreds if we tried to approach God inappropriately. And that leads me to an obvious question. What's your covering today? What are you covered with? 
if you had to walk the walk that the Israelites walked and you went down through those two rooms of the temple and you peeked inside the curtain, would God's, would God's holiness overwhelm you or would it overshadow you? Have you chosen to wrap yourself with Christ? Have you chosen to put on his blood as your garment? Or, like that man we mentioned earlier, are you still clinging to a picture? Are you still holding on to it tightly? And you've asked Jesus to step out of the house. And if you're unprotected tonight, today, God is gracious. That's the good news. That he's infinitely gracious. And we see that even in the Old Testament because sometimes we get this idea that God is a wrathful God in the Old Testament, but the New Testament will hang out there because he's a little bit nicer. God chose purposely to live in the deepest recesses of that tabernacle, not because he's antisocial, but because he was protecting people from his holiness. He had a curtain up. He had a second room, another curtain up. And then even around that entire complex was a big boundary where no one could enter unless they were sacrificing. This is the very reason Adam was asked to leave the center of the garden, not because God didn't want him to have abundant life, but because he didn't want him to die. You see, God taught me this week that he would rather see us roaming and alive than drawing near to him dead. And could it be that today, the reason why that you've been roaming throughout your entire life is because God's not finished with you. If God were finished with you, it, it could have been over in an instant. He promised Adam, if you sin, you will surely die. But yet, we walk around all the time, don't we? Could it be that maybe the reason that you're roaming and the reason that you're wondering is because that he's a plan and a purpose for you, that he's raising you up? Maybe it's because he loves you so much that he couldn't leave you. But we don't want to miss this. Why are we roaming? Is it because we're trying to run away from God? As if God could somehow forget where we are? Is it because maybe we're trying to run so close to him that we're trying to twist his arm in order to love us more with our effort and with our good works and with everything that we do? But I'm here to tell you, you can't earn your way back to him any more than you can earn your way from him. God can't miss you, but you can't force his hand either. And I want us to go back now to ancient Israel. If this was you, if this was you running from God, or if you're like me and you're like, God, God, notice me, notice me, look at my effort. Then if I were Moses, what I would tell you is to pitch your tent as close to this boundary as you possibly could so that you could be nearest to God. But because you're a sinner, I would tell you to take one of your bulls and it's not just any bull. This is your favorite. This is the one that has no blemishes on it. The one that you probably were there when it was born. That you watched it take its first steps. You probably have even named this bull. Because in that society, animals were deeply, deeply loved and cherished. Not unlike today. We get this idea that the Israelites just love often animals. But this would have been shocking. Because as they took that bull and they walked up to that entrance to the, to the courtyard, and as they saw, the very first thing that they saw, this bronze altar sitting in front of them, and they looked over at their precious animal, and they said, I really deserve to be on that altar, but, but that's where you're going to go. You're going to die for me today. 
And this would have been as shocking of a picture as they could have ever imagined. They would have literally sat in horror, seeing the full reality of what their sin has earned. But not them. They got off. But this is why this is a picture. This is why this isn't the fullness. This is why that the Old Testament sacrificial system could never fully save. Because that man or that woman who offered that bull would turn around and they would walk away. Knowing that they've been spared. But they couldn't go inside the temple. They couldn't go in and meet with God. That was only for the priest. And the priest could only take that offering and they could go in and offer it for you on your behalf. But you couldn't do it yourself. But there's even greater limitations than that, even that the high priest is the only one who could go into that second room. And he only one time out of 365 days. And if that wasn't limited enough, when he walked into that first room and he lit the incense and all that smoke started going up, the only thing that separated those two rooms was a, was a curtain. There was no door. There was no wall. All that smoke goes pummeling and rolling into that second room so that when he stepped in there, he could barely see his feet in front of him. And why? Why is that? It's not because God wanted him choking out on a bunch of smoke and because he wanted his eyes watering because God's like that. That's not it at all. It's because God was protecting him. That smoke was covering him. It was covering him so that he could be protected so that he could offer sacrifices for his people and so that they could live with God. It was a picture, but it wasn't the full reality. See, what this teaches us is that God does want the wilderness wandering people to come home. But that our sin is so costly and so serious that there has to be a sacrifice. And this sacrifice with this bull wouldn't cut it. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. And that is an accurate portrayal of the entire Old Testament system. That here is this man who is sinful, but by God's unimaginable grace is allowed to live because of the blood of an animal. It's a picture. It points to something greater. It points to something even more unimaginable. And something brand new that's going to begin. Because see, when Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, entered into human history... He was the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 again says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And by his death and by his perfect blood, there is forgiveness of sin and there is redemption. He can offer salvation to anyone and everyone that he chooses. Look at Hebrews 9.13. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons sanctify, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see what this means? That Christ is the greater sacrifice. That the unlimited God came down to give us a limitless relationship. And Jesus is not just a sacrifice. Remember I told you all those layers that you had to go through in the Old Testament? Christ tore them all down so that when he died, the temple curtain tore. There is no boundary between us and God. We can walk boldly into the throne of God now because of Jesus. So my question is, are you still holding on to the picture? 
you still have that old thing that you're holding and squeezing and, and saying, no, this is good enough for me. I'm going to squeeze it until I can make it real. I'm going to kiss it until it's actually real and in my arms like some kind of Disney movie. Please, 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 I beg you, don't walk that path of the high priest where you go step by step trying to go into God's presence and that at the end of your life you open up the curtains and you're surprised because you're not covered and that his holiness overwhelms you when Jesus is offering it to you freely. If you're today and you've not experienced salvation, please, please, please don't hear this as an invitation to work harder, to try harder, to pray more, to read more Hebrews in Greek, which is funny. <clears throat> don't think you need to go to seminary because I'm here to tell you today that once and for all, for all eternity, your debt has been canceled. Your debt has been paid in full and it's been paid by the greatest sacrifice, Jesus. Now, if you're not, if, if you're not a Christian here today, it's, it's really easy. Forget what society has told you that you have to earn it. I want you to do three things because I'm Southern and I probably was Baptist at some point and three things just make sense. <laughs> Number one, accept that reality down into you. And I don't mean just believe it, because it says even the devils in hell believe this, and they shudder. They're terrified because they know it's true. That means belief is not enough, right? Accept it down into you so that it transforms you and comes out of you. Number two, thank Jesus for what he's done. I can't say that enough because how many thankless days have you walked? I know I've walked a million where I've forgotten to just say thank you, Jesus, for what you've done because I couldn't do it. And then number three, this is my hardest one. Stop trying to fix everything about you because in Jesus, it's already fixed. You may not be perfect, but the sin and the the, the one thing that kept you from God's presence is done. You don't have to earn it anymore. You don't have to fix it anymore. You don't have to duct tape it. Duct tape fixes a lot, but not this. Now, if you're a Christian here today, I don't want to leave you out because that's how I roll. First thing I want you to do is I want you to accept this reality in you. It's so easy as a Christian to walk by in life and just not even have a care or a thought in the world that this Jesus has come and saved me every day. Salvation is not a moment in time when I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I need saving today. I need saving from the sin that I'm trying to commit. I need saving from the temptation the devil's bringing my way. I need to be saved right now from this present darkness. Number two, if you're a Christian, thank Jesus for what he's done for you. Never stop thanking Jesus for what he's done. If that reality gets old, let us pray and ask God to forgive us so that we can start thanking him again. And then if you haven't noticed the pattern, number three, stop trying to fix everything about you and live in the grace that God has given you. See, this is my problem. I go to school and I go to school to learn about Jesus. And that's pretty awesome. And 
most of the time, I'm so stressed out and frustrated because I'm trying to earn this little tiny letter that's, that's got a point here at the top and a line in the middle. I think we call it an A. And this one letter on this page gives me so much grief and so much heartache because I have high standards of myself. This is who I am. And if I can't do this, then maybe I'm not that significant. If I see that B, then what's that B going to tell me about me? When all my family's asleep, I'm up grueling it out, barely awake, drinking nasty, hot, really thick coffee. I was in the army. That's just how we drink it. (laughs) Maybe that's a pride thing too. I don't know. But that A, that letter A, that all that is, is ink spilt on a page. And it just so happened to be in a certain design. But why would I hold my life captive over a little A that's just ink spilt on the page when I've got Jesus who's got blood spilled on the cross for me? Maybe it's not grades though, right? Maybe it's love. Maybe it's affection. Maybe you go home and... And you don't really feel all that loved. Maybe the person in your life tears you down. And, and maybe you just hope that if, if that person could show you love, if that person could show you attention and affection, then you'd really be somebody. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe you've been skipped a couple of times and now you're worried, am I really that good? Do people think that I'm, I'm lousy? If I could just get this promotion, if I could just get up to the top of the ladder, then... I would feel significant. Maybe it's the amount of money you make. Maybe you don't feel like that you're making enough money to support you and your family, and you're drawing from that a conclusion that you're not good enough. Maybe it's as simple as you being a grocery store in line, and your kids are going crazy like mine do, and we miss how beautiful they are because we draw from that fact that somebody thinks I'm not a good dad, somebody thinks I'm not a good mom, and we walk away feeling deflated. Maybe you struggle with an addictive behavior and you try so hard. You give it your best shot. And then late one night, you mess up again. But friends, those things are pictures that are holding you down. You're squeezing them and trying to squeeze life out of them. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus' sacrifice can do that for you today. Because his sacrifice is the only thing big enough and the only thing powerful enough to take every single thing that we've done in, cleanse us so that we can come into God's presence. Now, if you walk away from here today hearing anything other than this, I want you to take that picture and I want you to put it on the mantle and I want you to give it to God and say, thank you, Jesus. That'll be a trophy of your grace that you overcame something in my life that we can accept how big his death is that we can thank him for it, and that we can stop forgetting who he is and trying to do it all ourselves. But Jesus gave us another picture. See, Jesus came and he lived here for, three, for 33 and a half years, and then he left. But he left us with a new picture, a better picture. Jesus is the better picture. If you're in my Genesis U class, you know that my syllabuses are subject to change. I'll fill out in great uh, effort what I think I'm going to say. And then the night before, Holy Spirit wrecks it. So if you noticed, the title of this sermon has nothing to do with what you've got in your bulletin. (laughs) Jesus is the better picture. That's the title of this sermon today. 
And if you're a child of the 80s like I am, or if you had kids in the 80s, or if you don't know, then you missed a great decade. But anyway, <laughs> I used to get so much pride from my little holographic pictures. You know, the ones you hold up to the light and you twist and you look at different angles? I didn't even like X-Men or Spider-Men, but I would totally carry a holograph just so that I could rock it out in front of my friends and be like, look at my holograph, bro. I think Jesus is like that. Jesus is not a one-dimensional or two-dimensional picture. Jesus is that three-dimensional picture where we see two things happening. Where I can see right here, Jesus came as sacrifice and he died on the cross for my sins. He's the greater sacrifice. But the most, the most important reality of all is that when we turn that, we look at it at a different angle. We see Jesus rising from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. He ascended to heaven and now he is interceding for you and for me in heaven before God. That means that he is bearing us into the presence of God because we couldn't do it ourselves. He's speaking our name right now before the Father. And if we can't have hope in that, and if we think that we have to earn it, then we've missed it. Because Jesus Christ is standing right now before God the Father for us.